This episode contains details that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. A Charlotte area real estate agent leaves his office for an appointment one afternoon, but never returns. The next day, a trail of blood is discovered at a home he once owned, but there's no sign of a body. A Lake Norman area real estate agent is enjoying her new career when she makes an appointment to appraise a home on the lake. Her husband returns home from a business trip a few days later and realizes she never returned from her appointment, even though her car has been found at a local restaurant with one window smashed in. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 15, Missing Real Estate Agents in North Carolina. Diane Gabriel was 38 years old when she went missing from Mooresville, North Carolina on July 18, 1983. According to her husband, Don, she had tried out several different professional careers before earning her real estate license right before the housing market crashed in the early 1980s. Still, she was motivated and enjoyed her job with Century 21 Realty. On the day she disappeared, Dawn had traveled to Columbia, South Carolina for a business trip. Diane had a few appointments with prospective buyers and also told colleagues about an evening meeting she had to assess some lake property in Mooresville that was for sale. None of her colleagues were available to go with her to that appointment, as this was something they tried to do for safety reasons. Her colleagues assumed that Diane went alone. When Don Gabriel returned home from his trip from Columbia two days later, he found no sign of Diane or her car. He did find a note in the trash with an address in Mooresville on it. The paper contained Diane's handwriting and listed an address for a three-bedroom house on Highway 150 in Mooresville, which would have been on Lake Norman. There was also a name, a phone number, and a mention of a green pickup truck. He contacted the authorities immediately. On July 20th, police found Diane's car, a 1981 Buick Skylark, at a Mooresville restaurant called The Pier. Diane's briefcase and realty company signs were in the trunk. The passenger side window had been shattered. Diane's keys were also missing, and investigators could find no sign of fingerprints on or inside of the car. The week after Diane's car was found at the restaurant, volunteers searching for her found a suspicious trash bag in a ditch off Highway 150. The bag contained pornographic magazines, a roll of duct tape, some towels, nylon rope, plastic utensils, a ballpoint pen, and a piece of duct tape that looked like it could have been used as a restraint. In the months following Diane's disappearance, newspaper articles in the Charlotte Observer reported the mindset of the real estate community. In an article published on August 11, 1983, staff writer Bruce Henderson wrote, in a world of sunny, yellow for sale signs, where a firm handshake and a trustworthy demeanor are tools of the trade, danger seems as far-fetched as a 7% mortgage. In the past month, however, Piedmont real estate agents, 
many of them women, have learned otherwise. The article went on to detail a few alarming incidents that had occurred since Diane's disappearance. On August 8, 1983, a real estate agent in nearby Lincoln County went to a home expecting to meet with a prospective buyer. When she arrived, she was confronted by a man wearing a ski mask and brandishing a handgun. After the man sexually assaulted the real estate agent, he left the home in her car. After this incident, authorities in Lincoln County made a public statement imploring female agents to go in pairs when meeting with unknown prospects or send a male colleague instead. They also didn't think there was a connection between the Lincoln County agent's rape and the Diane Gabriel case. The Iredell County investigators had a lead on the Diane Gabriel case on the August 8th article. Reporter Bruce Henderson noted that a few months before Diane went missing, another female real estate agent had attempted to visit that same house in Mooresville on Lake Norman for an appraisal. She got spooked by some barking dogs and left. The owners of the house told authorities the house had never been for sale and that they had made no such appointments. Let's get back to what investigators were uncovering about Diane's case in the meantime. A latent print expert for the State Bureau of Investigation was able to lift fingerprints from the duct tape found by the volunteer and match them to a man named Johnny Joseph Head. He was a construction worker that lived about 25 minutes from where the bag had been found in Mooresville. And, seven months after Diane went missing, a man walking in snowy woods near Paradise Peninsula Road, where Diane had been headed for that appointment, found more items related to the case. He came across her clothing, shoes, keys, purse, and a notepad. These items were discovered near the McCrary Creek access area, which had been extensively searched after Diane's initial disappearance. Investigators were able to connect materials found in Head's home to items of Diane's that were found in the woods. He was arrested and later charged with Diane's murder, although he was released on a $100,000 bond that his parents posted the money for. In a newspaper article announcing Head's release on bail, an investigator with the Iredell County Sheriff's Department gave a statement to reporter Kate Boylan. He said they had evidence Head had made an appointment with Diane the evening she went missing. The address of his parents' home was found in Diane's house on a piece of paper. They also searched the head home and found hair, fingerprints, a business card, and a photograph they linked to Diane. Based on what they found, authorities believe Head lured Gabriel to his home at Lake Norman, bound her hands and feet with duct tape, and strangled her. 28-year-old Johnny Joseph Head went on trial in March of 1985, but as one Charlotte Observer article noted, the lack of a body complicated the job of the district attorney prosecuting the case. At that point, there was only one other known case in North Carolina of a person being convicted of murder with no evidence of a body. In 1860, a Rockingham County man named Robert T. Williams had been convicted of murdering Peggy Isley, although Peggy's body had never been found. Johnny Joseph Head was convicted of the second-degree murder of Diane Gabriel, which meant the jury believed he killed Diane with malice, but not with premeditation and deliberation. He was sentenced to 50 years in prison. His attorney immediately filed an appeal, but the North Carolina Court of Appeals ruled in February of 1986 that the circumstantial evidence linking Head to the death of Diane Gabriel 
was sufficient enough for conviction. Head was released in 2001 after serving only 16 years of his sentence. He continues to maintain his innocence in the case. Meanwhile, the body of Diane Gabriel has never been found. Before we discuss the next disappearance, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Are you looking to level up your writing this fall? Whether you focus on nonfiction or are more inclined to creative writing, WOW Women on Writing has a whole roster of classes that can help you achieve your goals. In the months of October and November, you can register for online classes like Writing Nonfiction for Children and Young Adults, Blogging Made Easy, and Fundamentals of Graphic Novel Creation. In the past, I've taken classes writing a young adult novel and crafting essays based on childhood memories and was able to produce some great results in only four to six weeks. To check out these reasonably priced classes, visit wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab. Next, I'd like to talk about the disappearance of a man named Bruce Ruffin. This remains an open cold case for the Mecklenburg County Sheriff's Department in North Carolina. Although he went missing on April 19, 1986, investigators assumed pretty early on that the 50-year-old man had met with foul play. Ruffin was a resident of Midland, North Carolina, a suburb of Charlotte. At the time of his disappearance, he was a married father of four who owned Dart Enterprise, a real estate firm located in Uptown Charlotte. Ruffin had moved to Charlotte from Greensboro in the mid-1960s. He was a graduate of North Carolina A&T State University and had started out his career running a construction company with his brothers. While he was in college, he took a hiatus to join the Air Force for several years. He started a real estate and building company called Jade Construction Company in the early 1970s. That business eventually went bankrupt, which we'll talk about later in this episode. I read several different news articles that were published in the Charlotte Observer at the time Ruffin disappeared, and they contained some conflicting reports that I wanted to address. One article I read said Ruffin left his office the day he disappeared around 3 p.m. in the afternoon and told the employees he would be back in just a few minutes. Supposedly, he left his 1972 green and white Chevrolet pickup behind and got into a different gray and black truck with an unknown male. But I also read another article that said Ruffin told his employees he was leaving to go show some houses that afternoon and left in his own pickup truck. So I'm not positive the story about Ruffin getting into a mysterious truck with a man no one had seen before actually happened. Here's what I do know for sure. Ruffin was wearing a brown sweater, tie, and pants and left behind his briefcase and checkbook in the office. Around 7.30 that evening, he called home and told his eight-year-old daughter that he would be home soon. He never arrived. The next day, repair crews discovered a bloody and disturbing scene at a home in Charlotte's Hidden Valley community. There was blood in both the kitchen, dining, and living room of the home, which was vacant at the time. Based on a blood trail that was found there, it appeared as if a body had been dragged out of the back door of the house, but a victim was not found on the property. Someone had also broken out a rear window of the home. Ruffin's son Brent, who also worked with Bruce at Dart Enterprise, said his father had previously owned the home two years prior and sold it twice. Brent told the reporters he didn't believe his father had plans to go to the residence on Billmark Avenue the afternoon he disappeared. Because the home was under foreclosure, 
and he hadn't expressed any interest in purchasing it again. On April 22nd, police discovered Ruffin's missing truck about 10 miles away from the Hidden Valley home where blood had been found. There was no blood in the truck or signs of a struggle. The truck was in a clearing behind some woods off Bellhaven Boulevard in northwest Charlotte. It was less than a month later that the question of whether or not Bruce Ruffin had died in the vacant house was answered. On May 10th, a man remodeling an empty house on Old Beatty's Ford Road in Charlotte came across a skull in the front yard. He contacted the Mecklenburg County Police Department, who, with the help of a police dog, located the rest of Ruffin's remains in a wooded area across the street from the home. Police believed wild animals had decapitated the body. Ruffin was identified through dental records. A local journalist named John Minter wrote most of the articles I used to research this story. And on May 12th, he reported that the Charlotte Mecklenburg police believed the motive of Ruffin's murder had to be tied to the house in Hidden Valley. One of Ruffin's friends, who was also an employee for Dart Enterprise, was quoted in the article as saying he thought he knew who the killer might be. He also feared for his own life and carried a shotgun and a pistol wherever he went. According to this same article, here is the theory police shared with the reporter. Ruffin met someone at the Billmark Avenue address shortly after he called his daughter that evening to tell her he'd be home soon. Once he arrived at the house, some sort of argument broke out. There was probably a struggle over the gun because there was evidence of shots being fired haphazardly throughout the house. One of these bullets may have caused the broken window at the back of the house that police had initially uncovered. Ruffin was shot at that time and his hands and feet were bound. He was left in a bedroom closet for several hours, but when the perpetrator returned, they must have found him still alive. Based on the evidence of blood in the closet, investigators determined a fatal wound was inflicted around 3 a.m. Ruffin's throat was cut and he was stabbed several times. This is when his body was dragged from the home and transported outside to a waiting vehicle. I mentioned earlier on that Ruffin's real estate business had gone through tumultuous times. In 1980, his first company, Jade Construction, declared bankruptcy. Ruffin was convicted at that time of making false statements about the company he owned in Charlotte, as well as a house and land he owned in Midland. He had to serve part of a one-year sentence for that crime. Ruffin then founded Dart Enterprise. He often purchased rundown buildings or homes that he repaired before selling, basically being an early pioneer in the house flipping business. A few of those properties resulted in liens by the city of Charlotte, and he was sued several different times, once by a blind woman who accused Ruffin of stealing her property after lending her several thousand dollars to pay back taxes on it. At the time of Ruffin's death, his son Brent told reporters that he had a slight suspicion of who may have murdered his father, but he didn't want to name any names. Ruffin's murder has never been solved. Anyone who has information on the murder of Bruce Ruffin can call Crime Stoppers at 704-334-1600. Although these two cases happened in the early 1980s, working in real estate still requires a great deal of precautions. While there have been many cases of crimes against professionals working in the real estate industry over the years, 
The first one that comes to mind for me is the widely publicized case of Beverly Carter. Beverly was a real estate broker working in the suburbs of Little Rock, Arkansas on September 28, 2014, when she made an evening appointment to show a home to what she thought was a married couple. When she didn't return home that evening after several hours, her husband Carl went looking for her at the address of the home she was showing. There, he found her car with her purse and wallet inside, but no sign of Beverly. Around 1 a.m., he received several perplexing texts from Beverly's phone. One said that her battery was low and that she would call him whenever she had a signal. Another said that she was out drinking with friends. This raised a red flag to Carl because 50-year-old Beverly was not one to go out drinking with friends normally, especially that late at night. He contacted the authorities the next day and volunteers began searching the area for Beverly, who was the mother of three and also a grandmother, on September 27th. Investigators were able to trace the communications Beverly had had with the potential buyer, and those led them to a man named Aaron Lewis. It was eventually determined that he had posed as a buyer in order to kidnap Beverly for ransom. He considered her an easy target because she was a woman and he believed she was rich. His plan backfired when he covered Beverly's face in a thick amount of duct tape and accidentally killed her. Investigators later found Beverly's body buried near a concrete plant where Aaron Lewis had once worked. Police believe Lewis's wife, Crystal Lowry, had been in on the plot and both were charged with capital murder and kidnapping. Crystal Lowry eventually chose to file for divorce from Aaron and testified against him in exchange for a 30-year sentence. Aaron Lewis was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Beverly's son, Carl Carter Jr., helped found a nonprofit organization called the Beverly Carter Foundation. The foundation's mission is dedicated to improving safety for realtors by providing scientifically-based research, information, consulting, training, and support at little to no charge to every MLS association, brokerage, and agent. This is a clip from the Foundation's website where Carl describes the mission of the Foundation. Since her passing, I've become a realtor and founded the Beverly Carter Foundation, an independent 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to the topic of agent safety. The topic of realtor safety is often a hard message to deliver and it's almost universally dreaded curriculum throughout the industry. While everyone may agree that it's an important topic, training sessions are rarely evaluated as practical, relevant, and engaging. The Beverly Carter Foundation was founded to create a lasting, substantive, positive impact on safety that every agent needs and deserves. We're committed to doing our very best to keep what happened to my sweet mom from ever happening again. I've heard from friends in the industry that real estate companies stress the importance of being safe while showing homes and meeting prospective clients and offer training and safety tips to agents. I compiled some tips for those working in real estate from the National Association for Realtors. Number one, if possible, Always try to have at least one other person working with you at an open house. Number two, check your cell phone strength and signal prior to the open house. Have emergency numbers programmed on speed dial. 
Number three, upon entering a house for the first time, check all rooms and determine several escape routes. Make sure all deadbolt locks are unlocked to facilitate a faster escape. Number four, make sure that if you were to escape by the back door, you could escape from the backyard. Frequently, high fences surround yards that contain swimming pools or hot tubs. Number five, have all open house visitors sign in. Ask for a full name, address, phone number, and email. Number six, when showing the house, always walk behind the prospect. Direct them, don't lead them. Say, for example, the kitchen is on your left and gesture for them to go ahead of you. Number seven, avoid attics, basements, and getting trapped in small rooms. Number eight, notify someone in your office, your answering service, a friend, or a relative that you will be calling in every hour on the hour. And if you don't call, they are to call you. Number nine, inform a neighbor that you will be showing the house and ask if he or she would keep an eye and ear open for anything out of the ordinary. Number 10, don't assume that everyone has left the premises at the end of an open house. Check all the rooms in the backyard prior to locking the doors. Be prepared to defend yourself if necessary. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram and Facebook, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. If you want to visit my blog and read more about true crime cases from all over the country, including the ones featured here, visit missinginthecarolinas.com. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at reneelroberson at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson.